0: yeah, Duncan Green here. Um, I'm very excited because I'm off on holiday next week and we're actually leaving the country, loosely speaking. I am going to Scotland, uh, going to Edinburgh and we booked ourselves into a pile of shows at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is this fantastic arts festival which happens every year. It's happening in a very much reduced level this year but it should be a lot of fun and just to be away from London and uh, the streets of a beautiful city like Edinburgh should be really good. But before I head off, I think I'll uh, summarise this week's posts on From Poverty to Power. So first up was the customary links I liked. Um, one thing that, that caught my attention this week was uh, somebody had done an alternative Olympics medal table. The Olympics already seems like an awfully long time ago, but they took the medal table and then did it medals per head. So they weighted it by population and they got to a completely different level. Um, ranking and actually the, the most the top performing country in terms of medals per, per head of population was San Marino who got three medals two for shooting and one for wrestling so hats off to San Marino. Uh, there are a few countries which were you know uh, bigger countries appeared uh, like Jamaica and New Zealand but but basically the, the big countries were way down once you actually weighted by population. Um, second post of the week was uh, a, a was a sort of some extracts from a report by the British NGO network Bond called Catalyzing Locally Led Development in the UK Aid System. And there's an awful lot of reports about this about, you know, how do we shift power towards local actors away from sort of white men in shorts and NGOs based in the north. And so I, I didn't have too many hopes when I picked this up because they tend to be big on exaltation. Um, and a bit low on, on plausibility and you know um and this one was actually better than i expected the um for a start they they really went through a serious process 6 months of discussions and conversations and interviews and they tried to understand why localization is not happening so proper sort of systems thinking and power analysis on that but also look for some positive deviance some positive outliers in terms of places where people are doing a bit of uh, localization and where it seems to be working. So it's 31 pages. I brought it down um, and, they, and they summarized it in six heavily connected areas that describe the relationship between international and local civil society organizations. So remember, this is a UK focus. It's the UK NGO network. So the first one was UK accountabilities. Increasingly, UK international NGOs must demonstrate in-depth accountability to donors, for a number of reasons, including declining support for UK aid among the general public, NGO scandals, such as those relating to safeguarding and CEO salaries. As a result, UK INGOs are, are perceived to be better equipped than local civil society organisations to deliver programmes on scale and report back to donors. We are, so INGOs and their partners can be hyper-accountable to donors, and people really like that hyper-accountable phrase with limited structural incentives for direct accountability to local communities. So in a way you can see it always as a constant tension between accountability upwards to your donors and accountability downwards to the people you're trying to help. And in the end, money talks louder than anything else and that accountability all accountability, often gets distorted into an upward hyper-accountability. Second point, governance and organizational structures. UK, INGOs, are predominantly staffed by white people and their headquarters are overwhelmingly based in the UK. And that matters. Third, funding flows. Donors are risk averse. So in a way, this is a bit like uh, the first point. Their preferred fund method for funding civil society is a system that uses policies and regulations based on UK laws. Their expectations and approach to risk, compliance and value for money are developed in the UK. So many funding mechanisms require the UK office to be the lead organisation. So this reinforces a top-down relationship where UK INGOs are in a position of power because they have the relationship with the donor and are responsible for completing all the due diligence on local organisations. So as long as donors insist on a UK INGO being the lead in any funding bid, you're going to have that disparity of power between INGOs and grassroots organisations. Fourth, understanding local capacity. If local CSOs and national staff are excluded from strategic and programmatic decision-making, as for the reasons I've just described, communities and project participants can come to be perceived as passive beneficiaries who need to have their skills built, that dreadful term, we are going to build their capacity, rather than be seen as whole active and resourceful actors with the solutions to their own problems. Fifth, use of knowledge and narrative. Certain types of knowledge and expertise are more valued than others. Analysis, findings and knowledge pieces authored and developed in Western European countries like the UK or in the US are often more valued than other insight. Expertise is often equated with academic credentials and research, monitoring, evaluation and learning processes are often designed by those deemed to have the right expert credentials. In addition, the dominance of the English language also means that knowledge and learning products are developed by and cater for native English speakers. I get such an advantage without even trying in so many conversations just because English is my first language. And that introduces a huge distortion into whose views are heard and valued. Final point, political and regulatory pressures on CSOs. And this is more of a a, a question of what's going on outside the UK. Increased political restrictions and regulations for CSOs can often mean that accessing funds from overseas is challenging. Lots of governments are trying to stop that happening. You have to declare if you get any money from foreign uh, funders and they're trying to dissuade it, uh, trying to stop it happening. So some governments that are hostile to CSOs impose restrictions on them, suppressing networks and political activity. So I thought that was quite a good, balanced, intelligent understanding of the problems and of some of the good things that are happening. Third post of the week. This week is, yeah, the news has all been about Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the uh, Taliban seizing power in Afghanistan. And I started to get really, yeah, by Monday, I was already getting fed up with the way that all the coverage seemed to be about this as a foreign policy problem for the US or the UK or the EU or whoever. And I just wasn't getting enough actual understanding of what was going on in Afghanistan. You know, to, um, and so I tweeted, I just said, you know, what to read. I'm interested in power analysis, stakeholder mapping of domestic players, which Afghan groups support or oppose the Taliban, and informed speculation about what comes next. I have to say, Wikipedia is not a bad place to start for this. I'm a big fan of Wikipedia. So I won't go through them all because, yeah, I got a lot of replies to the tweets and then I got a lot of additional uh, suggestions in comments and they're still coming in. Um, And some really good curated threads on Twitter of Afghan authors writing about this. And um, so just, you know, uh, I'll I'll just give you a flavour. So the one piece I particularly liked was by Antonio Giustozzi, who's the author of the 2018 book, The Taliban at War. And I'll just read you a little bit from his piece. I think it was in The Guardian. Overall, the primary concerns of the future Taliban-led government will be pragmatic It will have to manage relations with neighbouring countries, Pakistan, Iran, Russia, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan and China, most of which have existing relations with the Taliban but do not entirely trust them. All have interests that they want the Taliban to respect. The Taliban-led government will struggle to keep the economy afloat and to maintain the provision of essential services, which have been suspended in much of Afghanistan as they advanced. The institutional reshaping of Afghanistan Will depend on the stability of the new coalition will the various islamic parties which often represent regional and sectarian interests be able to cooperate successfully with the more conservative taliban in the long run if so the taliban's clericalism will have to be reconciled with the islamist more technocratic aspirations and with regional interest groups the taliban already hinted that they would like a council of senior clerics along the lines of iran's guardian council to vet laws and decrees on the basis of their conformity with, re- with religious law. Many of the ministries, on the other hand, could be run by college-educated Islamists. Since most of the neighbouring countries want stability in Afghanistan, at least for the time being, any fissures in the new coalition government are unlikely to be exploited by external actors to create rifts. Similarly, the 2021 losers, will struggle to find anybody willing or able to support them in starting some kind of resistance. As long as the new coalition government includes key allies of its neighbours, this is the beginning of a new phase in the history of Afghanistan. So all these kind of things, these op-eds, these opinion pieces are liable to be overtaken by events very quickly. But at least that one seemed to be rooted in an attempt to understand what's going on within Afghanistan. And, uh, and there's many other excellent pieces in, 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 in the links. So do, if you're interested in a, a, different, a different way of thinking about what's going on there, do please um, uh, go and have a look. The fourth post was one of those posts where I'm not quite sure uh, I understand it all, but I know that FP2P readers like it. And it's about monitoring and evaluation. One of the big, you know, um, bugbears of working in NGOs or if you like doing monitoring and evaluation one of the most exciting things trying to find out whether what we're doing is actually having an impact. So this was eight mistakes to avoid in reporting an INGO's contribution to the sustainable development goals and it was a guest post from Jimena Echeverria Magallinos and Jay Goulden of Care International. So you know I'm I'm a skeptic. I I don't understand M&E and I'm a skeptic on the SDGs, but I just thought this was quite a good piece and I know people are interested in this stuff. So I put it up there. So the eight mistakes are privileging numbers over everything else. And they're talking about Care International's own experience in trying to say, okay, we helped uh, 157 million people in achieving different different sustainable development goals. right, so they've done this big exercise to try and stand that up and make it rigorous. And these were the mistakes they learned from. First one, privileging numbers above everything else. While we did collect some data on how projects had contributed to impact, the system primarily quantified numbers of people impacted. We did not yet systematically gather qualitative data or data from participatory monitoring and evaluation. Um, So the main lesson is feed qualitative and participatory evidence into your system as well as quantitative evidence, but it makes it much harder. Second point, second mistake, overly complex indicators. We selected a set of 25 global indicators, but actually lots of people didn't use them. They were just too difficult to use. So only five projects reported impacts on the adolescent birth rate. So the lesson there is when selecting indicators, consider how easy or difficult they are to report against and removed those that aren't being used. Third, gender metrics were not prioritised. So although CARE has gender equity as a core approach across all its work, um, the indicators of gender equality were at the bottom of a 280 row Excel form. Oops. So not surprisingly, few projects got that far, few projects reported against them. So lesson, make your priorities a core target and put them at the top of your data collection system. Fourth mistake, inconsistent learning. While we did identify the learning behind the numbers for some areas of our work, for example on stunting or preventing uh, gender-based violence, we did not have a defined learning agenda. We've used our latest SDG report to generate key lessons from the last five years, but we should have been more proactive. So the lesson there is define a small set of learning questions and then structure your evidence and data to respond to these. So. Yeah, M&E is increasingly uh, been replaced by M-E-L, monitoring, evaluation and learning, because otherwise you do the monitoring and evaluation just to feed the donor and you don't learn from it as an organisation, which is a terrible waste. So this is one of their learning points from this. Next next mistake. Many projects slipped through the system. We didn't track why projects were ending without reporting impact. Um, So the lesson there is ensure you systematically track whether projects are reporting impacts and take action to address any gaps. Next mistake, using complicated offline tools. Initially we collected data in Excel which caused complications for colleagues across the world working with different versions of the software. We moved to an online system this year. Lesson, plan for user-friendly online data collection tools that will work in low bandwidth environments but that you can keep adjusting as needed. Next, investing more on data collection than use. So this is the thing where people just collect massive amounts of data and then they don't do much with it. Once teams could see how to use the system through better data visuals, and people throughout the organization were paying attention to the data, the the inputs got better because people felt that the data quality mattered. So the lesson there is remember that use of the data is as important as getting the data reported. Think of the different personas of users and plan to get the system to give them what they need. Final mistake, there was no unique identifier for projects. This one's a bit geeky, you're telling me, but until this last year, we didn't set up a unique code that identifies projects in our global impact systems. So lesson is do that from the start. It will save a lot of time in the long run, um, believe me believe them. And that was it. People came on comments and said, thank you for that. That's exactly the sort of challenges we're facing. Thank you for being so honest. There's always this tendency that NGOs don't want to share their mistakes. They only want to share their triumphs and that reduces the amount of value to other people. So well done, Care International. Well done, Ximena and Jay for doing that. And people were very appreciative. Final post of the week was an extra post. I don't normally post uh, on Fridays, but this one, was a fantastic Twitter thread from uh, Justin Podur, "How to Write About Afghanistan: A Style Guide for Western Journalists," and this has now become a bit of a meme. And it all—it was all kicked off by uh, Binia Wangwa in 2005 in Granter, who wrote a piece about a satirical piece about how to write about Africa. Justin the, the, yeah, just references another one on how to write about Haiti, and this is how to write about Afghanistan. And I just thought it was great, so I'll just give you a, a couple of paragraphs. But I'll yeah, do please read the the, the original because it's it's really good. So first the opening. All good articles about Afghanistan start with a few lines from a poem by British imperialist poet Rudyard Kipling. You know the one: the women come out to cut up what remains, blow out your brains, blah blah blah. Next, maintain a solid grasp of British imperialist images and phrases. Don't update them in light of new events. Everything that happens in Afghanistan is a game—a great game, to be specific. That's what the delusional British called their destruction of the country. Follow them, and so on. And he's got—you know—he's got screen grabs of articles doing all these things, and using all the memes and the—you know—the clichés about Afghanistan. That game where they—you know—are um, on horseback playing with a a calf's head that Rambo used, Um, the famous picture of the the girl with green eyes in the refugee camp in in National Geographic. You know, reference all those things. And it's just a a fantastic takedown of lazy journalistic cliches when writing about uh, Afghanistan. So I shall end on that note. Have a great weekend. And I won't be here next week, but I'll talk to you the week after, hopefully. Bye.